Lecture 10 of Pioneers of Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Pioneers of Science by Sir Oliver Lodge. Lecture 10. Notes to Lecture 10. Science during the century after Newton, the Principia, was published, 1687. Romer, 1644-1710. James Bradley, 1692-1762. Clairot, 1713-1765. Euler, 1707-1783. D'Alembert, 1717-1783, Lagrange, 1736-1813, Laplace, 1749-1827, and William Herschel, 1738-1822. Olaus Romer was born in Jutland and studied at Copenhagen. Assisted Picard in 1671 to determine the exact position of Tycho's observatory on Huen. Accompanied Picard to Paris and 1675 read before the Academy his paper On Successive Propagation of Light as Revealed by a Certain Inequality in the Motion of Jupiter's First Satellite. In 1681 he returned to Copenhagen as Professor of Mathematics and Astronomy and died in 1710. He invented the transit instrument, mural circle, equatorial mounting for telescopes, and most of the other principal instruments now in use in observatories. He made as many observations as Tycho Brahe, but the records of all but the work of three days were destroyed by a great fire in 1728. Bradley, professor of astronomy at Oxford, discovered the aberration of light in 1729 while examining stars for parallax, and the nutation of the Earth's axis in 1748, was appointed Astronomer Royal in 1742. Lecture 10. Romer and Bradley and the Velocity of Light At Newton's death, England stood preeminent among the nations of Europe in the sphere of science, but the preeminence did not last long. Two great discoveries were made very soon after his decease, both by Professor Bradley, of Oxford, and then there came a gap. A moderately great man often leaves behind him a school of disciples able to work according to their master's methods, and with a healthy spirit of rivalry which stimulates and encourages them. Newton left, indeed, a school of disciples, but his methods of work were largely unknown to them and such as were known were too ponderous to be used by ordinary men. Only one fresh result, and that a small one, has ever been attained by other men working according to the methods of the Principia. The methods were studied and commented on in England to the exclusion of all others for nigh a century, and as a consequence no really important work was done. On the continent, however, no such system of slavish imitation prevailed, those methods of Newton's which had been simultaneously discovered by Leibniz were more thoroughly grasped, modified, extended, and improved. There arose a great school of French and German mathematicians, and the laurels of scientific discovery passed to France and Germany, 
more especially, perhaps, at this time, to France. England has never wholly recovered them. During the present century this country has been favoured with some giants who, as they become distant enough for their true magnitude to be perceived, may possibly stand out as great as any who have ever lived. But for the mass and bulk of scientific work at the present day we have to look to Germany, with its enlightened government and extensive intellectual development. England, however, is waking up, and what its government does not do, private enterprise is beginning to accomplish. The establishment of centres of scientific and literary activity in the great towns of England, though at present they are partially encumbered with the supply of education of an exceedingly rudimentary type, is a movement that, in the course of another century or so, will be seen to be one of the most important and fruitful steps ever taken by this country. On the continent such centres have long existed. Almost every large town is the seat of a university, and they are now liberally endowed. The University of Bologna, where, you may remember, Copernicus learnt mathematics, has recently celebrated its 800th anniversary. The scientific history of the century after Newton, summarized in the above table of dates, embraces the labours of the great mathematicians Clairaut, Euler, d'Alembert, and especially of Lagrange and Laplace. But the main work of all these men was hardly pioneering work. It was rather the surveying, and mapping out, and bringing into cultivation, of lands already discovered. Probably Herschel may be justly regarded as the next true pioneer. We shall not, however, properly appreciate the stages through which astronomy has passed, nor shall we be prepared adequately to welcome the discoveries of modern times, unless we pay some attention to the intervening age. Moreover, during this era several facts of great moment gradually came into recognition, and the importance of the discovery we have now to speak of can hardly be overestimated. Our whole direct knowledge of the planetary and stellar universe, from the early observation of the ancients, down to the magnificent discoveries of a Herschel, depends entirely upon our happening to possess a sense of sight. To no other of our senses do any other worlds than our own in the slightest degree appeal. We touch them or hear them never. Consequently, if the human race had happened to be blind, no other world but the one it groped its way upon could ever have been known or imagined by it. The outside universe would have existed, but man would have been entirely and hopelessly ignorant of it. The bare idea of an outside universe beyond the world would have been inconceivable, and might have been scouted as absurd. We do possess the sense of sight, but is it to be supposed that we possess every sense that can be possessed by finite beings? There is not the least ground for such an assumption. It is easy to imagine a deaf race, or a blind race. Is it not so easy to imagine a race more highly endowed with senses than our own? And yet the sense of smell in animals may give us some aid in thinking of powers of perception which transcend our own in particular directions. If there were a race with higher or other senses than our own, or if the human race should ever in the process of development acquire such extra sense organs, a whole universe of existent fact might become for the first time perceived by us, and we should look back upon our past state as upon a blind chrysalid form of existence 
in which we had been unconscious of all this new wealth of perception. It cannot be too clearly and strongly insisted on, and brought home to every mind, that the mode in which the universe strikes us, our view of the universe, our whole idea of matter and force and other worlds, and even of consciousness, depends upon the particular set of sense-organs with which we, as men, happen to be endowed. The senses of force, of motion, of sound, of light, of touch, of heat, of taste, and of smell. These we have, and these are the things we primarily know. All else is inference founded upon these sensations. So the world appears to us. But given other sense-organs, and it might appear quite otherwise. What it is actually and truly like, therefore, is quite and forever beyond us, so long as we are finite beings. Without eyes, astronomy would be non-existent. Light it is which conveys all the information we possess, or, as it would seem, ever can possess, concerning the outer and greater universe in which this small world forms a speck. Light is the channel, the messenger of information. Our eyes, aided by telescopes, spectroscopes, and many other scopes that may yet be invented, are the means by which we read the information that light brings. Light travels from the stars to our eyes. Does it come instantaneously? Or does it loiter by the way? For if it lingers, it is not bringing us information properly up to date. It is only telling us what the state of affairs was when it started on its long journey. Now, it is evidently a matter of interest to us whether we see the sun as he is now, or only as he was some three hundred years ago. If the information came by express train, it would be three hundred years behind date, and the sun might have gone out in the reign of Queen Anne without our being as yet any the wiser. The question, therefore, at what rate does our messenger travel, is evidently one of great interest for astronomers, and many have been the attempts made to solve it. Very likely the ancient Greeks pondered over this question, but the earliest writer known to me who seriously discussed the question is Galileo. He suggests a rough experimental means of attacking it. First of all, it plainly comes quicker than sound. This can be perceived by merely watching distant hammering, or by noticing that the flash of a pistol is seen before its report is heard, or by listening to the noise of a flash of lightning. Sound takes five seconds to travel a mile. It has about the same speed as a rifle bullet, but light is much quicker than that. The rude experiment suggested by Galileo was to send two men with lanterns and screens to two distant watch-towers or neighboring mountain-tops, and to arrange that each was to watch alternate displays and obscurations of the light made by the other, and to imitate them as promptly as possible. Either man, therefore, on obscuring or showing his own light, would see the distant glimmer do the same, and would be able to judge if there was any appreciable interval between his own action and the response of the distant light. The experiment was actually tried by the Florentine academicians, with the result that, as practice improved, the interval became shorter and shorter, so that there was no reason to suppose that there was any real interval at all. Light, in fact, seemed to travel instantaneously. Well might they have arrived at this result. Even if they had made far more perfect arrangements, 
for instance, by arranging a looking-glass at one of the stations in which a distant observer might see the reflection of his own lantern, and watch the obscurations and flashings made by himself, without having to depend on the response of human mechanism, even then no interval whatever could have been detected. If, by some impossibly perfect optical arrangement, a lighthouse here was made visible to us after reflection in a mirror erected at New York, so that the light would have to travel across the Atlantic and back before it could be seen, even then the appearance of the light on removing a shutter, or the eclipse on interposing it, would seem to happen quite instantaneously. There would certainly be an interval. The interval would be the fiftieth part of a second, the time a stone takes to drop one-thirteenth of an inch. But that is too short to be securely detected without mechanism. With mechanism the thing might be managed, for a series of shutters might be arranged like the teeth of a large wheel, so that, when the wheel rotates, eclipses follow one another very rapidly. If then an eye looked through the same opening as that by which the light goes on its way to the distant mirror, a tooth might have moved sufficiently to cover up this space by the time the light returned, in which case the hole would appear dark, for the light would be stopped by a tooth, either at starting or at returning continually. At higher speeds of rotation some light would reappear, and at lower speeds it would also reappear, by noticing, therefore, the precise speed at which there was constant eclipse, the velocity of light could be determined. This experiment has now been made in a highly refined form by Fizeau, and repeated by M. Cornu with prodigious care and accuracy. But with these recent matters we have no concern at present. It may be instructive to say, however, that if the light had to travel two miles altogether, the wheel would have to possess 450 teeth, and to spend 100 times a second, at the risk of flying to pieces, in order that the ray starting through any one of the gaps might be stopped on returning by the adjacent tooth. Well might the velocity of light be called instantaneous by the early observers. An ordinary experiment seemed, and was, hopeless, and light was supposed to travel at an infinite speed. But a phenomenon was noticed in the heavens by a quick-witted and ingenious Danish astronomer, which was not susceptible of any ordinary explanation, and which he perceived could at once be explained if light had a certain rate of travel, great indeed, but something short of infinite. This phenomenon was connected with the satellites of Jupiter, and the astronomer's name was Romer. I will speak first of the observation, and then of the man. Jupiter's satellites are visible, precisely as our own moon is, by reason of the shimmer of sunlight which they reflect but as they revolve round their great planet they plunge into his shadow at one part of their course, and so become eclipsed from sunshine and invisible to us. The moment of disappearance can be sharply observed. Take the first satellite as an example. The interval between successive eclipses ought to be its period of revolution round Jupiter. Observe this period. It was not uniform. On the average it was forty-two hours, forty-seven minutes but it seemed to depend on the time of year. When Romer observed in spring it was less, and in autumn it was more than usual. This was evidently a puzzling fact. What on earth can our year have to do with the motion of a moon of Jupiter's? 
it was probably, therefore, only an apparent change, caused either by our greater or lesser distance from Jupiter, or else by our greater or less speed of travelling to or from him. Considering it thus, he was led to see that, when the time of revolution seemed longest, we were receding fastest from Jupiter, and when shortest, approaching fastest. If, then, light took time on its journey, if it travelled progressively, the whole anomaly would be explained. In a second, the earth goes nineteen miles. Therefore, in forty-two and three-quarters hours, the time of revolution of Jupiter's first satellite, it goes two-point-nine million, say, three million, miles. The eclipse happens punctually, but we do not see it till the light conveying the information has travelled the extra three million miles and caught up the earth. Evidently, therefore, by observing how much the apparent time of revolution is lengthened in one part of the earth's orbit, and shortened in another, getting all the data accurately, and assuming the truth of our hypothetical explanation, we can calculate the velocity of light. This is what Romer did. Now the maximum amount of retardation is just about fifteen seconds. Hence light takes this time to travel three million miles. Therefore its velocity is three million divided by fifteen, say two hundred thousand, or as we now know more exactly, one hundred eighty-six thousand miles every second. Note that the delay does not depend on our distance, but on our speed. One can tell this by common sense as soon as we grasp the general idea of the explanation. A velocity cannot possibly depend on a distance only. Romer's explanation of the anomaly was not accepted by astronomers. It excited some attention, and was discussed, but it was found not obviously applicable to any of the satellites except the first, and not very simply and satisfactorily even to that. I have, of course, given you the theory in its most elementary and simple form. In actual fact, a host of disturbing and complicated considerations come in. Not so violently disturbing for the first satellite as for the others, because it moves so quickly, but still complicated enough. The fact is, the real motion of Jupiter's satellites is a most difficult problem. The motion even of our own moon, the lunar theory, is difficult enough perturbed as its motion is by the sun. You know that Newton said it cost him more labor than all the rest of the Principia, but the motion of Jupiter's satellites is far worse. No one, in fact, has yet worked their theory completely out. They are perturbed by the sun, of course, but they also perturb each other, and Jupiter is far from spherical. The shape of Jupiter, and their mutual attractions, combined to make their motions most peculiar and distracting. Hence an error in the time of revolution of a satellite was not certainly due to the cause Romer suggested, unless one could be sure that the inequality was not a real one, unless it could be shown that the theory of gravitation was insufficient to account for it. This had not then been done, so the half-made discovery was shelved, and properly shelved, as a brilliant, but unverified speculation. It remained on the shelf for half a century, and was no doubt almost forgotten. Now a word or two about the man. He was a Dane, educated at Copenhagen, and learned in the mathematics. We first hear of him as appointed to assist Picard, the eminent French geodetic surveyor, 
whose admirable work in determining the length of a degree you remember in connection with Newton, who had come over to Denmark with the object of fixing the exact site of the old and extinct Tishonic Observatory in the island of Huen, for of course the knowledge of the exact latitude and longitude of every place whence numerous observations have been taken must be an essential to the full interpretation of those observations. The measurements being finished, young Romer accompanied Picard to Paris, and here it was, a few years after, that he read his famous paper concerning an inequality in the motion of Jupiter's first satellite, and its explanation by means of an hypothesis of the successive propagation of light. The later years of his life he spent in Copenhagen as a professor in the university, and an enthusiastic observer of the heavens, not a descriptive observer like Herschel, but a measuring observer like Sir George Airy or Tycho Brahe. He was, in fact, a worthy follower of Tycho, and the main work of his life is the development and devising of new and more accurate astronomical instruments. Many of the large and accurate instruments with which a modern observatory is furnished are the invention of this Dane. One of the finest observatories in the world is the Russian one at Polkawa, and a list of the instruments there reads like an extended catalogue of Romer's inventions. He not only invented the instruments, he had them made, being allowed money for the purpose, and he used them vigorously, so that at his death he left great piles of manuscript stored in the National Observatory. Unfortunately, this observatory was in the heart of the city, and was thus exposed to a danger from which such places ought to be as far as possible exempt. Some eighteen years after Romer's death a great conflagration broke out in Copenhagen, and ruined large portions of the city. The successor to Romer, Horobo by name, fled from his house, with such valuables as he possessed, to the observatory, and there went on with his work. But before long the wind shifted, and to his horror he saw the flames coming his way. He packed up his own and his predecessor's manuscript observations in two cases, and prepared to escape with them. But the neighbours had resorted to the observatory as a place of safety, and so choked up the staircase with their property, that he was barely able to escape himself, let alone the luggage, and everything was lost. Of all the observations, only three days' work remains, and these were carefully discussed by Dr. Gala of Berlin in 1845, and their nutriment extracted. These ancient observations are of great use for purposes of comparison with the present state of the heavens, and throw light upon possible changes that are going on. Of course, nowadays, such a series of observations would be printed and distributed in many libraries, and so made practically indestructible. Sad as the disaster was to the posthumous fame of the great observer, a considerable compensation was preparing. The very year that the fire occurred in Denmark, a quiet philosopher in England was speculating and brooding on a remarkable observation that he had made concerning the apparent motion of certain stars— and he was led thereby to a discovery of the first magnitude concerning the speed of light, a discovery which resuscitated the old theory of Romer about Jupiter's satellites, and made both it and him immortal. James Bradley lived a quiet, uneventful, studious life, mainly at Oxford, but afterwards at the National Observatory at Greenwich, 
of which he was third astronomer royal, Flamsteed and Halley having preceded him in that office. He had taken orders, and lectured at Oxford as civilian professor. It is said that he pondered his great discovery while pacing the long walk at Magdalen College, and a beautiful place it is to meditate in. Bradley was engaged in making observations to determine, if possible, the parallax of some of the fixed stars. Parallax means the apparent relative shift of bodies due to a change in the observer's position. It is parallax which we observe when travelling by rail, and looking out of the window at distant landscape. Things at different distances are left behind at different apparent rates, and accordingly they seem to move relatively to each other. The most distant objects are least affected, and anything enormously distant, like the moon, is not subject to this effect, but would retain its position however far we travelled, unless we had some extraordinarily precise means of observation. So with the fixed stars. They were being observed from a moving carriage, that is, the earth, and one moving at the rate of nineteen miles a second. Unless they were infinitely distant, or unless they were all at the same distance, they must show relative apparent motions among themselves. Seen from one point of the earth's orbit, and then in six months from an opposite point, nearly 184 million miles away, surely they must show some difference of aspect. Remember that the old Copernican difficulty had never been removed. If the earth revolved round the sun, how came it that the fixed stars showed no parallax? The fact still remained a surprise, and the question a challenge. Picard, like other astronomers, supposed that it was only because the methods of observation had not been delicate enough. But now that, since the invention of the telescope and the founding of the national observatories, accuracy hitherto undreamt of was possible, why not attack the problem anew? This, then, he did, watching the stars with great care to see if in six months they showed any change in absolute position with reference to the pole of the heavens, any known secular motion of the pole, such as precession, being allowed for. Already he thought he detected a slight parallax for several stars near the pole, and the subject was exciting much interest. Bradley determined to attempt the same investigation. He was not destined to succeed in it. Not till the present century was success in that most difficult observation achieved, and even now it cannot be done by the absolute methods then attempted. But, as so often happens, Bradley, in attempting one thing, hit upon another, and, as it happened, one of still greater brilliance and importance. Let us trace the stages of his discovery. Atmospheric refraction made horizontal observations useless for the delicacy of his purpose, so he chose stars near the zenith, particularly one. Why Draconis? This he observed very carefully at different seasons of the year, by means of an instrument specially adapted for zenith observations, that is, of a zenith sector. The observations were made in conjunction with a friend of his, an amateur astronomer named Molyneux, and they were made at Kew. Molyneux was shortly made First Lord of the Admiralty, or something important of that sort, and gave up frivolous pursuits. So Bradley observed alone. They observed the star accurately early in the month of December, and then intended to wait six months. 
but from curiosity Bradley observed it again only about a week later. To his surprise he found that it had already changed its position. He recorded his observation on the back of an old envelope. It was his wont thus to use up odd scraps of paper. He was not, I regret to say, a tidy or methodical person, and this odd piece of paper turned up long afterwards among his manuscripts. It has been photographed and preserved as an historical relic. Again and again he repeated the observation of the star, and continually found it moving still a little further and further south, an excessively small motion, but still an appreciable one, not to be set down to errors of observation. So it went on till March. It then waited, and after a bit longer began to return, until June. By September it was displaced as much to the north as it had been to the south, and by December it had got back to its original position. It had described, in fact, a small oscillation in the course of the year. The motion affected neighboring stars in a similar way, and was called an aberration, or wandering from their true place. For a long time Bradley pondered over this observation, and over others like them which he also made. He found one group of stars describing small circles, while others at a distance from them were oscillating in straight lines, and all the others were describing ellipses. Until this state of things were cleared up, accurate astronomy was impossible. The fixed stars! They were not fixed a bit! To refined and accurate observation, such as was now possible, they were all careering about in little orbits having a reference to the Earth's year, besides any proper motion which they might really have of their own, though no such motion was at present known. Not till Herschel was that discovered, not till this extraordinary aberration was allowed for could it be discovered. The effect observed by Bradley and Molyneux must manifestly be only an apparent motion. It was absurd to suppose a real stellar motion regulating itself according to the position of the earth. Parallax could not do it, for that would displace stars relatively among each other. It would not move similarly a set of neighboring stars. At length, four years after the observation, the explanation struck him while in a boat upon the Thames. He noticed the apparent direction of the wind changed whenever the boat started. The wind veered when the boat's motion changed. Of course the cause of this was obvious enough. The speed of the wind and the speed of the boat were compounded, and gave an apparent direction of the wind other than the true direction. But this immediately suggested a cause for what he had observed in the heavens. He had been observing an apparent direction of the stars other than the true direction, because he was observing from a moving vehicle. The real direction was doubtless fixed— the apparent direction veered about with the motion of the earth. It must be that light did not travel instantaneously, but gradually, as Romer had surmised fifty years ago, and that the motion of the light was compounded with the motion of the earth. Think of a stream of light, or anything else, falling on a moving carriage. The carriage will run athwart the stream, the occupants of the carriage will mistake its true direction. A rifle fired through the windows of a railway carriage by a man at rest outside would make its perforations not in the true line of fire unless the train is stationary. If the train is moving, the line joining the holes will point to a place in advance of where the rifle is really located. 
So it is with the two glasses of a telescope, the object-glass and eyepiece, which are pierced by the light. An astronomer, applying his eye to the tube and looking for the origin of the disturbance, sees it apparently, but not in its real position. Its apparent direction is displaced in the direction of the telescope's motion, by an amount depending on the ratio of the velocity of the earth to the velocity of light, and on the angle between those two directions. But how minute is the displacement? The greatest effect is obtained when the two motions are at right angles to each other, i.e., when the star seen is at right angles to the direction of the earth's motion, but even then it is only twenty inches, or one hundred-eightieth part of a degree, one-ninetieth of the moon's apparent diameter, it could not be detected without a cross-wire in the telescope, and would only appear as a slight displacement from the centre of the field, supposing the telescope accurately pointed to the true direction. But if this explanation be true, it at once gives a method of determining the velocity of light. The maximum angle of deviation, represented as a ratio of arc divided by radius, amounts to one divided by the quantity, 180 times 57 and a third, end of quantity, minus point zero 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 one, equals one ten-thousandths, a gradient of one foot in two miles. In other words, the velocity of light must be ten thousand times as great as the velocity of the earth in its orbit. This amounts to a speed of 190,000 miles a second, not so very different from what Romer had reckoned it in order to explain the anomalies of Jupiter's first satellite. Stars in the direction in which the earth was moving would not be thus affected. There would be nothing in mere approach or recession to alter direction or to make itself in any way visible. Stars at right angles to the earth's line of motion would be most affected, and these would be all displaced by the full amount of twenty seconds of arc. Stars in intermediate directions would be displaced by intermediate amounts. But the line of the Earth's motion is approximately a circle round the Sun. Hence the direction of its advance is constantly, though slowly, changing, and in one year it goes through all the points of the compass. The stars, being displaced always in the line of advance, must similarly appear to describe little closed curves, always a quadrant in advance of the Earth, completing their orbits once a year. Those near the pole of the ecliptic will describe circles, being always at right angles to the motion. Those in the plane of the ecliptic, near the zodiac, will be sometimes at right angles to the motion, but at other times will be approached or receded from. Hence these will oscillate like pendulums once a year. And intermediate stars will have intermediate motions, that is to say, will describe ellipses of varying eccentricity, but all completed in a year, and all with the major axis, twenty arc-seconds. This agreed very closely with what was observed. The main details were thus clearly and simply explained by the hypothesis of a finite velocity for light, the successive propagation of light in time. This time there was no room for hesitation, and astronomers hailed the discovery with enthusiasm. Not yet, however, did Bradley rest. The finite velocity of light explained the major part of the irregularities he had observed, but not the whole. The more carefully he measured the amount of the deviation, 
the less completely accurate became its explanation. There clearly was a small outstanding error or discrepancy. The stars were still subject to an unexplained displacement, not indeed a displacement that repeated itself every year, but one that went through a cycle of changes in a longer period. The displacement was only about half that of aberration, and having a longer period was rather more difficult to detect securely. But the major difficulty was the fact that the two sorts of disturbances were coexistent, and the skill of disentangling them, and exhibiting the true and complete cause of each inequality, was very brilliant. For nineteen years did Bradley observe this minor displacement, and in that time he saw it go through a complete cycle. Its cause was now clear to him. The nineteen-year period suggested the explanation. It is the period in which the moon goes through all her changes, a period known to the ancients as the lunar cycle, or metonic cycle, and used by them to predict eclipses. It is still used for the first rough approximation to the prediction of eclipses, and to calculate Easter. The golden number of the prayer book is the number of the year in this cycle. The cause of the second inequality, or apparent periodic motion of the stars, Bradley made out to be a nodding motion of the Earth's axis. The axis of the Earth describes its precessional orbit or conical motion every 26,000 years, as had long been known, but superposed upon this great movement have now been detected minute nods, each with a period of 19 years. The cause of the nodding is completely accounted for by the theory of gravitation, just as the precession of the equinoxes was. Both disturbances result from the attraction of the moon on the non-spherical earth, on its protuberant equator. Nutation is, in fact, a small perturbation of precession. The motion may be observed in a non-sleeping top. The slow conical motion of the top's slanting axis represents the course of precession. Sometimes this path is loopy, and its little nods correspond to nutation. The probable existence of some such perturbation had not escaped the sagacity of Newton, and he mentions something about it in the Principia, but thinks it too small to be detected by observation. He was thinking, however, of a solar disturbance rather than a lunar one, and this is certainly very small, though it too has now been observed. Newton was dead before Bradley made these great discoveries, else he would have been greatly pleased to hear of them. These discoveries of aberration and nutation, says Delambre, the great French historian of science, secured to their author a distinguished place after Hipparchus and Kepler among the astronomers of all ages and all countries. End of Lecture 10